Hello, Second Shooters. Producer Matt Stoker here. Wanted to give you a quick message before we kicked off today's episode. Now, today is going to be a rerun because things have been a little bit busy around here with the new year. But this is one of the most impactful episodes of Second Shot we've ever recorded. And we wanted to make sure you had a chance to hear it in case you missed it in the past. And this is back from when we first started doing Second Shot sit-downs with Jenny and a special guest that had some sort of amazing story to tell. And today is no exception. This episode is one of the most incredible stories you might ever hear. Her name is Anna Baron. She grew up within a polygamous cult run by her father. And you're going to hear about the things that went on within that cult and also her efforts to get out and get safe. It's absolutely amazing. Obviously, I just want to say up front, content warning. Um, she talks about a lot of things that went on, and, and these are some sensitive topics. So you may just want to make sure you're careful where you're listening to this. But there is so much here to learn about life and about reinventing yourself and about putting the past behind you and trying to live a normal life after trauma. Uh, it's You won't believe it. So please enjoy this episode of Second Shot, we will be back on track in the weeks to come. And remember, send us an email at secondshotcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at Second Shot Podcast. And please enjoy. Anna LeBaron is an author, a social media coach, a mother of five, and a grandmother. Anna LeBaron also escaped a polygamous cult and lived to tell the story. This is her second shot. On Second Shot, we cover two new stories every week to find out what kind of wisdom the world is dishing out today. And at the heart of every one of these stories are people, just like you and me, who've had to overcome incredible odds, to face the greatest challenges, to struggle and fight back. But now, we're changing it up. In these episodes, we're skipping the headlines and going straight to the people that inspire us to grow, to be bold, seek change, and act courageously when the rest of the world may not. A second look, a second chance, a second shot. This is Second Shot Sit Downs with your host, Jenny Anchando. Welcome everybody to Second Shot Sit Downs. I'm your host, Jenny Anchando. I wanted to give you a heads up just right from the get-go here that typically we put all of these out as family-friendly content. We say listen with the kids, listen with anybody. This one is going to be more adult content. Um, so as I mentioned off the get-go, we're talking about a woman who escaped from a polygamous cult, Anna LeBaron. Um, and then this is also just a, a, a trigger warning in terms of a couple discussion topics. We're talking about trauma, childhood abuse, and neglect. So we just want to make sure everybody's in a space where they can hear and, and digest that kind of content. Now I want to tell you about our guest. Okay, Anna LeBaron is the author of The Polygamous Daughter. She is also a first-generation non-polygamist. Anna has more than 50 siblings and spent much of her childhood with her family, running from the FBI and running from the Mexican police. She is the daughter of notorious polygamist Erval LeBaron, whose cult is responsible for more than 28 murders. In fact, some say even more than that. He died in jail, but she escaped, and she is here today to share her story and how she fought for her second shot. Welcome, Anna LeBaron. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Gosh, you know what? I got to, uh, first of all, I, I'm personally so inspired 
by you and your story and what you've done. I'm just, I'm touched that you had the strength to get through it and then to write this book. Um, so that's just a thank you from me to you for having the strength to do that because I know that that could not have been easy. I'm just, I'm wholly impressed. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's start from that escape. I mean, mm-hmm. I think people hear escape from a polygamous cult and the first thing you wonder is, how did you know it was something you should escape from, considering that's how you were raised? And also, how'd you do it? Yeah. So I didn't know that I was in a cult. Mm. Um, I escaped when I was 13. But let me tell you a little story. When I was 10, I was reading U.S. News and World Report about the um, jo- James uh, Jonestown Massacre. Yeah, okay. And I was reading and thought to myself, these poor people in this cult. So that just tells you that when you're just um, surrounded by it and it's your normal, it's hard to know that there is something bad going on that you need to extricate yourself from. You had no idea. I had no idea. And I didn't even have an idea when I escaped. When I ran away from home at age 13, I wasn't running away from the cult because I still didn't know that I was in a cult. Okay. I was um, running away from some events that were um, imminent. My mom was planning to move our family from Houston, where we lived, Mm -hmm. back to Denver, where we had lived before. And I didn't want to end up in Denver. Because Denver, for people who haven't read the book, I mean, we're talking about true child abuse. Yes. And and you were working. work Slave labor. Yeah. Explain what that was like, that work situation in Denver that you knew as a teenager. Okay. I don't know. I'm in a cult, but I know I don't want to go back to that. Right. We were um, working 12 hour days um, all summer long um, under very difficult circumstances with very little food. I mean, we had to dumpster dive for food. We had to dumpster dive for clothing. And I was a part of that. Yeah. And in Houston where we were living, still in the cult, but under somebody else's direction and authority, um, we were given at least a a little bit of dignity for our work. We would get actually paid $5 a week to work all week. And so for a 13-year-old who never had anything, $5 a week is like a large sum of money. Of course. And so it gave us just a little bit of dignity. Yeah, and you didn't paid. So you knew you didn't want to leave. And so what did you how did you get away? How did you get out? Well, I the the man and the lady that were in charge of the Houston faction of our group, mm-hmm. it was my sister Lillian and her husband Mark. Cuz you weren't even living with your parents at that point in time. I was living and with never my lived mom. with your dad. Never lived with my dad, but I was living with my mom at the time. So I called my older sister, she's a half sister of mine, and just let her know, I don't want to go to Denver. I called her in, you know, in this, took the phone, the, remember the, yeah, the you long snuck cord, away. snuck away into the bathroom and whispered and called her and said, I don't want to go to Denver. And she just said to me, start walking. And so that's what I did. And she came and found you miles later. She came later. and found me. Um, I'd walked just a little over three miles. So if you do any kind of walking or running, you know, that's a 5k. Yeah. So I call that my 5k to freedom. Oh, And she found me. She hid me in a hotel for several days. During that time, my mom looked for me. And then when, even though she couldn't find me, she packed up all my siblings in the station wagon, leaving everything behind and drove to Denver. And you're, and you're alone at this point, you're alone in a hotel, 13 years old, you guys. I mean, and I think that's really hard 
to, to imagine that a 13-year-old would have the wherewithal to understand her living conditions were going to be so bad, but also to separate from her mother and, and from all these siblings. How many kids were living in the house at the time? There were, um, at the time, probably 10 or 12. Um, it changed regularly, the number of people that lived in the house, because so many were on the run from the law and all of that. People came and left in the middle of the night. The adults did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you went to bed one at night, and in the morning you didn't know who you were going to wake up to, whether it was additional people or some that had left. As a child, and I want you guys to go, it's like I want, I want to tell the audience, put yourself in her, her shoes, but you, it's just very impossible to imagine. You were prepared for FBI raids. You were prepared for um, questioning by police. These are the sort of things that you were conditioned to be aware of. What was that like? What was that conditioning like? You, we just lived in a constant state of fear, of being found out, of being um, caught you know, the FBI busting through the doors, Mm -hmm. being questioned. We were taught and drilled to lie to people who were outsiders. And and we weren't even allowed to play outside for the most part because with so many kids living in one house, in a regular house, um, you know, having that many kids playing constantly outside would bring attention that was unwanted. Right. So we lived just in fear, um, Fear, chaos, and insecurity. And what was Just, some of the, aside from the, aside from the, you know, working conditions that you all were under and the sometimes lack of education for children, what were some of the other criminal activities that family members were involved in that, that warranted them running from the law? They were, um, well, they were killing people that my dad, my dad would order hits on the ones who dared to leave. He would order hits on rivals and, um, you know, when we say the ones who dared to leave, um, there's a doctrine called blood atonement, uh-huh. meaning there are some sins that the blood of Christ can't cover. And so you have to atone for that sin with the shedding of your own blood. And so people that would leave our cult after they joined and realized, oh, my gosh, there's all this stuff happening. Right. Um, if they knew what was going on and they could go to the police with information, my dad would order hits on them. Oh, it's so scary on a it, it, people. A lot of our audience is in Dallas. They're, they're all over the country and really all over the world. But a lot of people are in Dallas. So people in uh, North Texas or Texas area will remember maybe the four o'clock murders, which mm-hmm. is kind of what they were coined. This was your family. Yeah. Right. And what age were you when this happened? I was 19. So you were 19 and we talk about she escaped from the cult, but this is still your family. Yes. Right. So you're still connected to all of these people. Describe what happened on that day. Well, I had already gotten out. I was living with my sister and brother-in-law, and I had just graduated from high school. It was the following summer okay. when um, the things that my dad had ordered. My dad died when I was 12, mm-hmm. but while he was in prison, um, he had penned a document that became known as the Book of the New Covenant, where um, people that had betrayed him were listed. And the summer in 1987 um, began my siblings um, going and fulfilling the things that my dad had penned years before. And they were doing this even after his death, so from the grave. Because they were so wrapped Mm -hmm. up in... in, And brainwashed. In what he taught them. Yes. 
so they began. And so when um, when the first one got, uh, when we found out that Dan Jordan had been killed in 1987, mm-hmm. um, that began us living in fear once again. And so our greatest fears came true um, on the day that became known as the four o'clock murders. It was June 27th, 1988. Um, Mark, um, Dwayne, his brother, Dwayne's daughter, Jenny, and my brother, Ed, um, were gunned down at the same time in three different locations. Mm. Ed was killed right here in Irving, Texas. Gosh. So you're uh, sort of on your, on your own, so to speak, at this point in time, but then still connected to your family. How, what was it like in that aftermath with all of these children, yeah. all these young children having to come to the realization that their family members were gone? It was very traumatic for everyone involved to experience that day. Yeah. And then the aftermath of that day. Um, seven months later, my sister Lillian committed suicide, leaving her six children orphaned. So trauma compounded by more trauma for those children. And then, as, as, but for me as well, um, Mark was like a father figure to me, having finished raising me from age 13 to we, till we lost him at age 19. And Lillian also a mother figure yeah. in my life, um, even though she, cause she was much older than me and she yeah. had six children and that the events of that day. And then the subsequent suicide of my sister um, left me in a clinical depression that was very difficult for me to come out of. And and the, the other part was that I didn't have any professional treatment for that. Oh my gosh, Anna, you barely had schooling, much less a professional treatment. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, that the, the things that the rest of the world had access to and, and at least knew was an option, that was not even within your sphere of, of knowledge. Is right. that right? Oh, yeah. So you were going through all this trauma, and, and we, we speak about the, the trauma. I mean, we're also talking about... Uh, you know, the, the priming for sexual abuse, mm-hmm. right? And for marriage as a young teenager. Yeah. At this point, you knew that you had been initially promised off to somebody yes. else in marriage, right? It happened regularly in our in our cult. My dad would use his daughters as pawns to get the men that would join to do his bidding, including uh, carrying out the hits that he would order. And so depending on our age at the time and who he was talking to and who was in his favor, when you reached around the age of 14 or 15 is when they would seriously start wanting to marry you off to some older man with a bunch of wives. And that was the life that we were groomed for and um, that we were prepared for and knew was in our future. Was that scary for you? It didn't feel like it. At the time, okay. because we didn't know any different. Because uh-huh. it's almost like you just, I mean, at 13, right? You were just maybe a year or two mm-hmm. away from marriage, right? Correct. From leaving your what would be known as your childhood with mm-hmm. your brothers and sisters to becoming a mother. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know, um, like the men in the, in the cult would sometimes approach the girls and make very inappropriate comments about, you know, would you want to one day be my wife? And, you know, already starting that, you know, fawning over Uh us to get us to, you know, curry favor and, you know, whatever. 
Um, I didn't know until later, after I was living with Mark and Lillian for quite some time, um, Lillian took me in her room and dug through her closet and pulled out this old piece of paper from among other, lots of other papers and showed me that from prison, my father had written a letter promising me to her husband, Mark. And their marriage um, was monogamous at the time okay. and stayed that way, which was very rare in our group. So you had this, this, this uh, anomaly of a situation that allowed you to sort of escape that mm-hmm. one little route. Yes. But when you think about your, your brothers and sisters, are, were they all, did they all end up in a polygamous situation? A lot of my siblings were married off, especially the older ones. Um, the younger ones, after my dad died, um, some of the younger ones escaped that, mm-hmm. including myself. But the older ones lived that life and were affected by it. And, you know, in some ways, their adult lives are still affected by that, even though they're not living it anymore. What happened after the four o'clock murders? Was the, was the cult over? Hmm. Well, after, after that, those events, um, they're just... When my father died, he left a gap in the rule and the authority of mm-hmm. the cult and who was going to run it and be the next, you know, prophet. And that resulted in a bloodbath. Mm-hmm. And these were things that I was unaware of, and that's why I didn't include them in my book, because if I wasn't aware of it as a sure, child, I didn't sure, sure. include it. I wanted the readers to get the perspective of the child okay. born and raised in that cult. So I wasn't aware um, but people were dying around me, mm-hmm. and we the, nobody talked about it. Um, nobody, uh, it wasn't discussed. We weren't told. There was no grieving. There was no mourning. The person left. Nobody would discuss it or talk about it. So it wasn't until I was fifteen. I'd been living with Mark and Lillian for quite some time, and I found a book um, called Prophet of Blood that had been written about my family of origin. Mm-hmm. And I read it wide-eyed and terrorized by the information that came out. That was when I realized that I'd been raised in a cult. That's when I realized that there were all these people that I loved and cared about that I would never see again because they were dead. Oh, my gosh, Anna. And, and I couldn't talk about it with anyone because... I was living with Mark and Lillian, and I didn't right. want them to know that I knew these things. And it was just a really um, trying time. I mean, the overarching thing I keep hearing here, the, uh, such a big difference between your childhood and, and what we would consider to be a regular American childhood is the ability to have emotions. Like the ability to, to, be, to, to be excited, to, be, to grieve, to mm-hmm. be sad, to be upset, to be angry, to be confused. Mm-hmm. Um, is that accurate? Very accurate. Was this an emotionless childhood for all of these kids? For the kids and for the adults. Um, Dr. Brene Brown you know, says you can't selectively numb your emotions. If you numb the negative ones, then you're also numbing the positive ones. Yeah. And so if the negative emotions and the positive ones are all numbed, that leaves you with just this little narrow uh, reality of emotion that you're allowed that's safe. And what was safe was pretending like everything was fine and that you were fine. Everything was fine. I'm fine. I'm good. And you had to pretend that all the time. 
Anna. Okay. So here's the, here's the thing I, I mentioned in the intro, you guys, all the things that she's done now. She's a social media coach. She promotes other people's books. She's written this incredible book herself. Um, and so I want, uh, you know, look, not everybody can relate to this specific situation you've been to through, but a lot of people can relate to the neglect, mm-hmm. the abuse, etc. And so I want to get into in this next segment how you went from point A to point B, yeah. the specific healing steps, mm-hmm. um, you know, how, what, what your practices are today and how you came to live in healthy relationships with your children. So we're going to talk about that coming up in the second segment of Second Shot Sit Downs. Really quick break to tell you guys about, and we have been so pumped about this, our new sponsor of the Second Shot podcast it is myllc.com. So Heath actually introduced me to this company uh, a long time ago because he's been using them for everything. Every time he puts together a new business, he goes there, gets the LLC set up. They send back a little portfolio with everything done. It's legally savvy, legally sound, and put together for you. So if you're somebody who's sort of like thinks that that's the daunting part of a business, which for me it always has been, myllc.com is for real where you want to go. And they're also hooking you guys up with a deal. So write it down. Maybe you're not starting a business today, but maybe you're getting inspired by the interviews. It is this 99 my LLC, which gives you $99 off of a new corporation or LLC. I will also tell you, we definitely price checked before doing this. It is for sure the most affordable option. Heath and I have been using them for years and years. We just adore this company. So myllc.com. And again, the code for $99 off is 99myllc. Okay, we're back with Anna LeBaron again, talking about her journey from a polygamous cult to where she is today. And really like Uh, What I want to focus on now is just the hope, the redemption, the fact that you can have life after this type of trauma. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I found really fascinating about this was that, you know, this was done in the name of religion, right? So you'd been raised, and I I would think it would be very hard to find your way back to any sort of uh, faith after this. So how'd you do it? Because I know you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus now. Yes, yes. I think that the reason why I have been able to sustain that and, um, and come to that and turn to that is because when we were being raised, like I said before, you know, we were on the run from the law. The adults were not concerned about the children. So we mm-hmm. weren't given really very much religious training or upbringing. Okay. Um, we did know certain things and were taught certain things, the Ten Commandments, for example, okay. you know, different things like that. But... Um, when I escaped, I was enrolled by Mark and Lillian into a private Christian school. Okay. And so the teachers there were given just enough of my background that they empathized with me and embraced me, kind of took me under their wing and, and nurtured me. Mm-hmm. And so being, being in that environment five days a week in school and then on Sundays and youth groups on Friday nights, all of those experiences where I experienced normalcy for the first time. I experienced feeling safe, feeling cared for, feeling nurtured. All of the things that you would want somebody that had been through what I'd been through to have. And they were providing that. 
And so when it came time for them, you know, when you're in a church environment, they do um, offer you and present the gospel to Mm -hmm. you. And so I was in a place where this experience was the best thing I had ever had. Mm. And so I was open and receptive. And you were able to tell the difference between what had been sold to you before mm-hmm. as as this religion mm-hmm. and then what was what was then given to you as this hug of faith and Christianity yes. and love. Mm-hmm. And you could tell the difference even as a child. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's amazing. I'm just I'm so thankful that those that you know the people in that school did did right by you mm-hmm. and didn't you know, cause further harm in the name of, of any sort of religion. I'm just, I'm so glad you were able to be open to that right. and to be open to that love because I think sometimes when people cut it off, right. you know, because they've been burned, you know, yeah. they've been hurt so badly mm-hmm. by something like that. Um, you also talk about, you, you, you've sought out a lot of help. I mean, yes. you've done work on your own. It wasn't like you escaped and the abuse stopped and all right. of a sudden, oh. miraculously, you can feel emotions again. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> yeah. So talk about uh, that journey and kind of, you know, how, how that went. Well, I eventually got married and began my own family. Mm-hmm. I had three boys um, of my own. Eventually, I had five children. But when the healing started, um, I had three boys. Okay. I was in my mid-20s and I was on a play date with a friend and through some circumstances that I talk about in the book, mm-hmm. um, the night before that play date, I had had a horrifying nightmare where um, in that nightmare, my brother, full blood brother, um, pulls up in a brown van, enters the house with guns and others mm-hmm. and shoots me. And now you've got your children of your yeah. own. You, and I'm laying yeah. on the floor in my nightmare um, thinking to myself, Pretend like you're dead, because if they don't think if they think you're dead, they won't shoot you again, and you can go find your children. And so that was just a horrifying nightmare to wake up to. Mm-hmm. And so I risked all kinds of things by telling her, because up until that moment, I did not talk about my family of origin very much, but I told this friend, and just at this play date, at a play a date, a new mom mm-hmm. friend, mm-hmm. which like. If you're a mom, you know these play dates can be, they're just kind of like you sit there, mm-hmm. you, you hang out with your kids. I mean, we're yeah. not usually getting that deep on that. I'm so, right. But this was a game yeah. changer for this you. This was a game the changer. The fact that you opened up to her. She said to me, you know, because I was a church, I was going to a church. Mm-hmm. And she said, at your church, do they have a lay ministry counseling center? And I said, no, they don't. And she goes, well, at my church, they do. If I make you an appointment, will you go? And at that point, I didn't even recognize that I needed help. And she did, though. Yeah. And she made the appointment. And then she says to me, do you need me to watch your boys while you're there? Or do you need me to drive you? Like, she fully intended for me to go and sit down at that appointment. You guys, this is so key. Like, this is so key when offering help. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't just say the resources are out there. She was like, I will watch your Mm -hmm. kids. I will take you. And and made no, it sounds like she didn't make it seem like any big deal for her. She knew you needed that. And so you did. I mean, you did your part too. um, I sat down with a woman. I don't know her name. I don't know the church name. Um, Mm -hmm. I just know that I sat there for an hour and really for the first time told a complete stranger everything about my family of origin that I could fit into an hour that would lead up to that moment why I would have such a horrific nightmare. And she very wisely at the end of that appointment um, gave me a business card um, for a 
professional counselor and said, you know, the kind of help that you need, I can't offer you here. And so I began professional counseling. It was 1995. And I talk about in the book um, that it took me five years of professional therapy, professional counseling, to get to the point where I could get back in touch with my emotions. And I, the first, you know, little bit with her, it would be hard for me to cry. Um, I would shed one little tear or two, and it was so uncomfortable for me. Well, you'd been raised to not feel. Right. And so um, eventually, um, more tears would come, and then more, and then more. And finally, at about five years, um, I tapped into the depth, the deep, deep well of grief um, that was just inside of me. Um, When I tapped into that, I would um, spend my hour with her sobbing, Mm -hmm. gut-wrenching sobs that would leave my abs aching Mm -hmm. the next day. And that well of grief um, wasn't just for the people that had died and that we had lost and for the trauma that we experienced and the abuse. And people in and out of your life in general. Yeah. um, It was grief for the people that we lost and the things that we lost, but also grief for the things that should have been and weren't. The fact that I was raised fatherless. Mm-hmm. I met my dad when I was nine years old and spent time with him two times that I can remember. And you just hung on to those times, right? Right, Like they were such a gift. Yes. And now as an adult, you're realizing what, what should have what should have been in place. And so those things were yeah. just, were grieved during that time period. And so people that meet me today and that um, find me on social media today and experience who I am today, very different than who I was before. Mm-hmm. Um, the joy that I have that's real and the way that I can have fun and experience my life in in such a big and vivacious and in effervescent way. Yes, lively. Yeah. What people experience from me today, I say that my pathway to the joy I have today was paved with grief. Mm. And I had to go through that. There was no way around it. Um, there was no way to bypass the suffering and the grief that was buried inside of me. This is, a, this is important to kind of like take in. I don't want that comment to just like go in one ear and out the other. First of all, she said five years, Mm -hmm. five years to feel. Um, Yeah. mm, We want to go in and we want to have an appointment and we want it to fix everything. We want six weeks and six steps and, you know. Yes, especially now. One and done. And it's just, it's just not that way for most people. Yeah. I do understand that miracles still happen and that people can, you know, have an experience that changes them overnight. Uh-huh. And I've watched it happen for other people. But for most people, it's it's healing is a process. Healing is a journey. I but, think it's encouraging to hear that, that, that it did take that time and, and the results that you got. Because sometimes along that journey, people don't want to go to the appointment. Like right. they don't want to go and yeah. they don't want to feel the feelings. Right. Like, look, I already had the bad past right. and I don't want to rel- relive it. You know, what my, you know what my therapist said to me? No, tell me. She said, when you start therapy, um, it gets 
worse uh, before it gets better. Because you have been in denial and been suppressing all of that for so long, and then when you finally tap into it and you get to experience that that emotion that was that should have been expressed a long time ago but wasn't, mm-hmm. um, it feels worse than it actually feels when it happened. But what she says, and she reminds she would remind me of yeah. this, is that re-experiencing the trauma, the abuse, and the neglect that we experienced, re-experiencing it in a safe environment with a therapist or a friend or any of that kind of thing, um, it's never worse when you're re-experiencing it in that safe place. Okay, because you're in the when safe you, place. You already lived through it. Yeah. Like, if you're sitting in a therapist's office, that means you survived. You did it. Mm -hmm. You managed to get yourself into that place. And I want to say that anybody who decides, I'm going to go get therapy, I'm going to go talk to a professional about the things that I experienced, um, it will feel worse. But it's not ever going to be worse than actually walking through and living through the things that you already survived. And you can do this. Oh, that's so key. That's so, it's so encouraging you guys, because if, I mean, with everything that, that Anna's been through and the the strength that you had to keep going and really solo, I mean, because as an adult, a lot of us still go to our parents and that's something that you did not have the benefit of being able to do. So you had to be so self-sustaining even as an adult and even as a mom. And I want to talk about that, how that how you were able to, um, you know, we all talk about, oh gosh, I'm becoming my mother. Oh gosh, you know, I'm, I'm being like my parents. Mm-hmm. But real talk, you couldn't do that. Right. So how did you change the trajectory of your family in being first generation non-polygamous? Mm-hmm. Well, in addition to therapy and journaling and, you know, talking to my siblings, like by that time, the cult did end mm-hmm. and it did um in the early 90s, it was over. Mm-hmm. And so when my siblings and I would get together, and I talk about some of that in the book, yeah. um, we were able to hash and rehash all of our stories. And having those safe people who understood without you having to explain mm-hmm. was so therapeutic. So talking to siblings, talking to friends, um, safe people. And that's the key part whether it's a, a spiritual mentor, a counselor, a therapist, a friend, if they're safe people, that's where the therapy happens. That's where okay. it's therapeutic and the value of it is therapeutic. Okay. And so just being able to talk a bit with my siblings and do all of those things um, helped get those stories from the inside of me to the outside of me, externalizing them. How did you learn to be a, a, a parent? How did you learn to be a mom? Was that another part of your, your church upbringing or was that inherent to you? Um, I think being a mom was inherent because we were just surrounded by moms. Yeah, and <laughs> you, you, it people, seems like you raised some of your you younger know, siblings already. Yes, you know, we were part of that, like the help that would help the moms that had small children. Mm-hmm. And that began at a very young age. So having that maternal instinct was natural. Mm-hmm. But parenting did, was not because we weren't parented. No, we were all. sent to work 12 hours a day. <laughs> we and barely, parented. I mean, you barely got food. So let's be honest, right? When, yes, <laughs> when I became an adult, I got married and started my own family. Um, one of the things that literally saved my life okay. was being able to read. Okay. I um, was a reader from a young age 
And as an adult, I left behind, you know, all the romance novels and things that I was in, enjoying as a teenage girl um, and became what I call a self-help junkie. Okay. Everything that I needed to know about marriage and family and parenting and homeschooling and finance and uh-huh. just all of the things that as an adult you are supposed to know and your parents are supposed to teach you. But uh-huh. I had no one. Um, I, had, I was self-taught in the form of a book. Every subject out there that you need to know about, there are people who are experts on that subject matter, and it doesn't even cost you anything. You walk mm-hmm. into a library, and they will get you any book you need. Oh, that's so important. That's so important. We make so many excuses. Mm-hmm. We make so many excuses for our past, for our childhood, for our lack of education, our lack of finances, our lack mm-hmm. of you know resources. And I just, I mean, and it, if you can't read, there are people that will teach you to read. Yep. You know, there are literacy programs. So mm-hmm. there's just really there's resources out there for everyone. And books ended up being um, the thing that I turned to. So I had mentors that I claim as my mentors who I've never met. Uh-huh. They mentored me Same. in the I do form that. of books. I do that too. <laughs> and it's super powerful. Like yeah. in now these nowadays podcasts if you are, don't like yeah. to read or reading's not your jam, you can learn anything through a podcast just about. Yeah. Now I'm I'm with you and that's why we do this. I mean to just like be a free resource for people. Um what's your relationship with your family like now? How your your you know my children or my your, siblings? Your siblings and the family that that was at one point a part of the cult. Yeah. They're, like I said, everybody in my family is out of the cult. Yeah. So no, there's nothing and there's no danger to me yeah, in telling my story or any of that. And through the magic and wonder of Facebook, <laughs> I've been able to reconnect um, yeah. with most of the families that want to be in touch with me. Um, I am. And we do, we get together for weddings and, you know, sometimes funerals. And nowadays, my family dies of natural causes. It's mm. incredible. Which never happened before. Which did not happen before. And so we get together, you know, at certain times of the year and just visiting. I'll have a sibling or, you know, whatever. I'm, you know, hey, I'm in Dallas. Can I crash at your house? Mm-hmm. And it's just wonderful to be able to experience normalcy, even among, you know, all the siblings that right. I have and being able to have those connections to them. The the thing that I love about our family is when we used to get together back, you know, when all this was new and we were out and it was new, all we could talk about was the past. And those stories were told and retold and retold. But what began to happen that was just incredible to me is as we would get together and plan birthday parties and different things that would, you know, put us, draw us together we began to create new memories and fun memories and normal memories of family. And now, you know, we get together and we can talk about, Hey, remember that time we went to the beach and remember that time we went to, you know, whatever the concert, the, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. those things, that birthday party, that wedding, you know, and we have all those pictures and memories that are made that feel so normal that it just, makes me um, emotional to think about the fact that we have overcome you have so much. So much. I'm so happy you have that. I'm so happy you made it to that point. What, what did your, this book, you guys, is so, so revealing. Um, what did your mom think of this book when it came out? Well, 
it, uh, she didn't have to wait till it came out because yeah, I told her, her um, when I was writing the book, she was very nervous naturally about the way I was going to portray her. And so I assured her that there was nothing about me writing this book that was intended to dishonor her, even though she continues to believe in the practice of polygamy, which devastated her children's lives. Mm -hmm. So I told her when I was finished with the manuscript and I turned it in that I would uh, print it out and fly to where she lives and I would read it to her. And I did. Um, My goal in doing that was I knew that my mom did not know a lot of the things that happened to me in my childhood. And I also knew that from the age of 13 on, she was not a part of my life regularly. And so I knew that a lot of the things that I was going to reveal and the things that I was going to talk about, she was unaware of them. And so I knew as, as a mom myself, I knew that she would grieve the things that happened to me. And I wanted to be with her in the flesh Uh and be a comfort to her with my very presence as she grieved, even though we don't see eye to eye about religion at all. But I knew that from where I was and the spirit in which I wrote the book and the spirit in which I wanted to tell my story to the world wasn't to cause more damage. Right. I wanted it to be a redemptive act. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're so evolved, Anna. I mean, you are so uh, just to think to go back and to be with your mom in that place. And I'm so glad that you did that. Um, yeah, that's a gift. You know, that was a gift to her. Um, I want to talk about because because you're somebody who I, I think is impressive. Um, and we're doing these questions with everybody who does a second shot sit down. A couple of reasons. First of all, because I like to hear about other people that you know that people I find inspiring who they find to be inspiring and want to meet with. I also really believe in speaking things into existence and saying them out loud if you want them to happen. So I want to hear from you, Anna. Who are the three people living that you would like to meet with, hang out with, chat with? Oh, my gosh. Top of the list, A number one, is the queen, Brene Brown. Yes. (laughs) I quote her, and I've I've learned so much from her books. She has mentored me and doesn't know it. Yes. Well, maybe one day she will. I don't think it's that far off. I really don't. I hope so. Number two would be Oprah Winfrey. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. Who doesn't want to have a sit-down with Oprah? Um, And I've learned a lot from her as well. Yes. She's a secret mentor of mine, (laughs) too. So, Oprah, let's do this. And then um, this last one is somebody that I have met but I've never had a sit down with. Okay. Who and is that's it? Beth Moore. Tell me about Beth. Beth Moore is a writer of women's Bible studies. Oh, great. Okay. And she, the first one I ever did was way back in the day um, when she wrote a Bible study called Breaking Free. Okay. And that Bible study impacted my life and began the spiritual healing that I needed. Um, and so... I'm just all emotional thinking about it. I am. I am for you too, because I don't, because, because these things can happen. Look at what's happened in your life so far. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would love for you to be able to connect with all these women who have impacted you so, so greatly. Um, Second question that we're doing is our our franchise for all of the second shot sit downs. Considering everything you've been through, where you've been, where you are now, what happened in between, if you could choose, would you choose for life to be wholly fair or wholly unfair? I would choose unfair. Life has been unfair to me, and um, 
It's those things that have caused me to rise up, to claim who I am, to become the person that God created me to be, and find a way to express myself to the world. Mm -hmm. And if it weren't for the injustices that I have experienced, I wouldn't be the person that I am today. Wow. That is bold. I mean, it's, it's impressive. And if somebody's not, I mean, if you're not inspired by that, I don't know what to do with you. You know, if you're not motivated by what on is saying, I, 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 you know, it really, it really is a lot considering you would say that. The last thing is, now you already got your book deal and you have your book, <laughs> but we're going to do a hypothetical here because I like to have a one line chunk of advice for people. So, so, so here's the hypothetical. I'm going to give you a book deal and I'm going to get that book in the hands of every single person who's ever needed a second shot, which is basically everybody. Mm-hmm. Am I right? Yes. What's the one line of that book? It's a one line book. What's it going to be? And we're going to distribute it worldwide. It is possible to heal from childhood trauma, abuse, and neglect. It's possible. Anna, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. I, I just was so... Uh, I, I just know that there's people who need to hear your story. I know it. I feel it. I know that you're going to change people, you know, through sharing this. Tell everybody where they can find you. I know that you've got, you guys, you've got a super fun, active Instagram. I love watching you at your CrossFit <laughs> workouts here in North Texas. Um, where can everybody find you on Instagram, website, book, all that? All of my social media is Anna K. LeBaron. My website is AnnaLeBaron.com. And um I don't know if you know this. I, my sister and I are flying to LA at the end of this month and we're in October of 2019, just in case people hear this later. So we're flying at the end of October to LA to record a podcast, a true crime podcast where we get to talk about our family of origin, the things that happened and also tell the redemptive stories. Mm. Oh, that's good. Okay. So, in order for yeah, you know to find out her. Uh, on a Caleb, on a forward slash podcast and go sign up. And as soon as it's ready for the world, we will email you. And so you can subscribe and download and listen and have fun with that. Yeah, that's great. We'll, we'll link up her sites on the podcast too. On a, you're amazing. You, I'm personally inspired. This has been, this has been great. You guys, if you got anything out of this episode, then leave us hit a rating. Hit me up on social. Yeah, then hit her up me. in social. Let her know you saw her. <laughs> leave a rating and a review. You know what I mean? Go on, get the book. I did it in audiobook because it's on his voice. Mm-hmm. So I just like, I felt like I was getting to know mm-hmm. you through that. So do the audiobook, do the book. Um, it's called The Polygamous Daughter. And if you like second shot sit downs, um, we're on iTunes, we're on Spotify, we're on iHeartRadio, we're on every single podcast platform there is. So if you're watching on Facebook, go over to the podcast platform. We are doing a two month long series of interviews like this with the whole intention of getting you to the end of the year, feeling like you can do this and you're going to tackle 2020. So we will see you next time. (laughs) Thank you, Anna. Thank you.